Hello, friends. Hello, music lovers. On this special occasion of the 100th episode of the podcast, I just wanted to say a few thank yous. Uh, thank you to all of you who have been listening, enjoying the content, um, commenting to me both at bendianmusic.com and also just in the comment sections. I, I'm just so thrilled that there's an audience of people who want to know a little bit more about music and a little bit more detail about their favorite artists. And we've been lucky enough to get a lot of the great artists of our time onto this show and be able to ask them some, uh, some probing questions. I think I've been told uh, is what happens, but yeah, this the, the program is just so meaningful to me as a musician I get to be fanboy and musicologist at the same time and connect with all these incredible artists who have given so much to progressive music and all of its many faces and to connect with, with an audience that feels the same way I do, that music is really an endless landscape to be explored and enjoyed and that's what we do here and we encourage it we're real real open stylistically genre wise genre unwise and um we're always on all platforms we're on apple podcasts if you don't want to watch us you can always listen to us and i'm going to continue to get that deep material to you more drummer to drummer talks uh more of the figures involved from the zappa scene from the Beefheart scene from the Holdsworth world. Uh, you know, I'm going to be definitely continuing to do that uh, with the help of my producer and enabler, Matt Stober, who is uh, my real partner in putting this whole thing out there to the world. So it's been amazing. And uh, this, uh, this is just an, a huge episode for me because it's an old friend Zuthorn Rollo, I, I also know him as Bill Harkleroad, as many of you do. And he's brought along a friend, uh, a new friend, but someone I've, I've have admired forever since my teen years, the great percussionist Art Tripp. And of course, those of you who know about Zappa's music and Beefheart's music know that these two gentlemen worked together on Lick My Decals and also uh, went on to form Mallard after they both left the Magic Band. And of course, Zudhorn Rollo, who I recorded with on his album, we saw Bozo Under the Sea back in 2000. We've remained good buds ever since. And he's one of those guys that remembers a lot of things. And we like to, to probe his memory on some of his experiences. But working with him has always been um, an amazing thing to to be a part of that record. So lots of juicy Zappa and Beefheart details in this one and a lot of really great background on our trip, if, if you're not familiar with his work. Uh, if, if there had been no art trip, if there had been no Ruth Underwood, there certainly would not have been any Greg Bendian's Interzone or any of the tune percussion stuff that I like to put on all of my work as much as possible from my solo stuff to my collaborations. So here we go. Episode 100, Art Trip and Zuthorn Rollo. Thanks for listening.
Hey, everybody, it's Greg Bendian here to share some great musical energy with you as we try to do every time and get deep into some musical concepts and some music history. And today I have an old friend and new friend I'm very happy to speak with. We have my old friend, Bill Harkle Rhodes, Udhorn Rolo, who I did a record with some years ago. And um, of course, one of the legends of percussion in new music and in progressive music, Art Trip. Thanks so much for being here. Bill, Art, thank you. Good to see you, Greg. Welcome. So you guys have some interesting commonalities, which we're going to discuss. Obviously, uh, did work together a lot in a couple of different setups, uh, particularly Captain Beefheart and also Mallard. And I would really love to to ask Art, Art, what was your uh, your lead up from doing kind of straight classical to doing more of the the avant-garde classical stuff, which led you to work with people like John Cage? Well, I was always interested in the avant-garde, you know, as I imagine a lot of young guys are uh, when they, you know, get a pretty good idea of what music is all about and they get fairly along uh, in the study of it and uh, I'm not sure exactly um, I remember uh, I went up to uh, I was in Cincinnati at the conservatory there City College Conservatory of Music and I went up to Antioch to hear uh, Max Newhouse and he was playing um the Carlin Stockhausen piece, uh, Zyklus or Zyklus, however you want to pronounce it. Zyklus, yeah. And uh, and I was really impressed with that. And I and uh, I talked with him afterwards, and uh, uh, I ended up playing the same piece for my uh, senior recital, for you know, to get my bachelor's. And um, I just became real interested in, in the freeform music. In fact, we had a we had a group um, that we got together once in a while. Guys, uh, a clarinet player, cello player, pianist, and I'd play the marimba, and we'd just spend the evening uh, playing freeform stuff and see what developed. And anyway, long story short, I just uh, you know at, a, at an early period, I don't know, it must have been. Midway through my my conservatory studies, I just got real interested in the avant-garde, and it made a lot of sense to me. And um, you know, at the time, uh, I suppose typical of a, of a young uh, hotshot musician uh, with a symphony, uh, I I had kind of a minor I don't know if you call it a resentment uh, that all the symphony played was music that was written hundreds of years before. It was like a museum rather than a representation of what music was going on these days. Of course, <laughs> the symphony is, is a money-making project. They're not gonna have to, they're not gonna play some, uh, you know, allotoric, you know, some far out piece and expect people to show up and, and uh, fork over uh, 50 bucks a seat to hear. But uh, so I get, you know, from that, that time on, I was, I, I could have stayed in Cincinnati and, and I, I'm sure I would have stayed with the symphony and I could have done very nicely uh, financially and 
but I was interested in uh, moving on. Uh, long story short, I ended up in uh, New York at the Manhattan School of Music, and uh, I was fortunate to get a scholarship. And I was studying with Fred Hanger, uh, the renowned timpanist with the Philadelphia Orchestra for so many years. And Mr. Hanger had had uh, uh, just taken the position of the timpanist with the with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. So he would give his lessons there rather than going up uptown to Manhattan School of Music. So I'd take my lessons there and then attend through school. And I, I really had, had no idea, you know, where I was going to go. I, I just I was just kind of putting one foot ahead of the other and whatever interested me and just go along the flow. I'm sure maybe you had the same experience. Uh, maybe we all have. Um, and then I uh, I just happened to meet. Uh, this fella uh, who was the recording engineer for Zappa uh, by the name of Dick Kunk. And he, his wife and my wife, we weren't married at the time, but my lady uh, worked together uh, as caseworkers for the city of New York. So Dick heard about me and uh, was interested. So he invited us over to his place uh, one evening for drinks. And we got to talking, and he was impressed. He said, I, I got to tell Frank about it. Well, I just heard about Zappa just a few weeks beforehand. And I thought it was, you know, I didn't know anything about rock and roll. I mean, of course, I'd heard the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And, but I didn't know the damn thing about it, except for the 50s rock. I knew a lot about that. But uh, I remember thinking, gee, that, uh, somebody played, gave me one of their albums. I think it was absolutely free. And I thought to myself, gee, if anybody asks me who my favorite rock and roll band is, I'll say, well, it's the Mothers of Invention, you know. And they were the only ones doing anything interesting at that time, at least that I knew about. So anyway, long story short, I, I, uh, I got called down there and, uh, one afternoon, and uh, Frank uh, had me play a little bit, and he really liked what I was doing. And he realized that I played all the percussion instruments, and he'd been wanting that. Um, so he'd never had a percussionist in the band before. And Billy Mundy was just leaving. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, I got, I, in fact, got hired. So that's how it got started. Do you remember anything about uh, auditioning for Zappa? Yeah. Uh, the first thing I remember was I didn't realize it was an audition. Uh, they called me down there to, uh, which I thought I was, I told Dick, I said, look, if you can use me for any session work, I could use the money, you know, like anything, any percussion part at all, whatever it is, drums, vibe, anything. So when he called me down there, I thought that's what that was for. I, I expected to play some kind of, I don't know what I expected. And, uh, but when he invited me back into the control room and I, I met up with Frank, and uh, Herbie Cohn was there, and Susie Cream Cheese, and Pamela Zerubica, and all those uh, folks. Anyway, he said, he says, come on out in the studio for a minute. And he said, could you play something for me? And I sat down, which I think was Billy Mundy's drums. I don't think he'd collected them yet after he left. And I hadn't sat at a set of drums in several years because I'd been playing a lot of percussion, but no, no trap drums. And uh, he said, could you play something? And I said, sure. I, what do you want? He said, play whatever you want to play. 
so I just took off and just played a lot of you know free form stuff. Uh, you know, I, I was I was listening to a lot of jazz at the time, and uh, uh, plus with my predilection for the avant garde, I, I just played all over the kit and nothing really in in time or meter. I just kind of wailed for a couple of minutes, and I stopped and looked up, and he said, "Man, that's really good." So uh, then he called in uh, Roy Estrada, who was the great bass player with with the Mothers, and uh, he asked if we could. He says, "Can you play in five? And I said, "Well, yeah." <laughs> so so we played for a while, and he said, "This is great." And he said, "Hey, you know, we're going upstate. That was on a Friday." He said, "We're going upstate. Play two gigs on Saturday and Sunday. Can you play? Can you come along with us?" And I said, uh, well, uh, yeah, I said, that sounded like a lot of fun. He said, we're supposed to have some people over on Saturday night. I don't know, you know, he, he said, well, it, it, would, it would give you about 500 bucks. And I said, 500 bucks? <laughs> Killer. <laughs> I mean, in those days, if you had a $100 bill, you right. got some attention. And $500, I said, yeah. <laughs> So uh, that's what got it started. And then we just, when we came back, and we did a lot of gigs around the area and went to Miami. And, and then at that time he was recording, uh, uh, he had me redo all the drum parts for uh, Cruising with Ruben and the Jets. And we were working on uh, Rooney in it for the money and some other stuff, which came out later. And at that point he had, uh, in fact, we had a couple of sessions where he invited, uh, yeah, had Ruth Underwood come in. Oh yeah. At that time, at that time it was Ruth Komanoff. She hadn't married Ian yet, and uh, she played uh, marimba, and I played vibraphone. And on that's what he used on um, Uncle Meat, recording Uncle Meat, and that was a lot of fun. I mean, it was really a lot of fun, and I liked the music, you know. And and one thing I liked about it was I. I could pretty much do whatever I wanted to do, you know, because I remember I asked Frank, I said, well, look, I don't know much about, you know, your music, you know, I don't know. Uh, I said, I'll listen to it and, and learn it. He said, well, just, you know, when we when we get on stage, just watch Jimmy Call Black and, you, and you'll learn the music. So that's what I did. And he said, anytime I point to you, just do a drum solo. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's how I started out with my first gig. We were up in Colgate, no, uh, Ithaca. And uh, we played in this big arena and we were all in the dressing room, which was actually just sitting backstage in the auditorium. And uh, he said, hey, uh, why don't you go out and get us started? And I said, you want to just go out and start playing? He said, yeah. So, that, so I played, you know, for about three to five minutes all by myself. And that was my first gig, you know, with, so it was it was like I died and gone to heaven. I mean, I could play anything I wanted to play, and the stuff he was writing was very attractive. I, I really enjoyed it, and it was new and fresh, and there was a lot of satire involved, and a lot of sarcasm, and, and it was just a lot of fun. You know, I just couldn't couldn't believe I was, I just kind of got dropped into that. It, do you think that Frank? was aware of or was attracted to your pedigree in terms of having worked in avant-garde classical as a guy who loved 
Verez and Stravinsky and Bartok and all of those people. Yeah. Seems like you'd be the perfect fit. He must have known that. Yeah, well, we had a lot of conversations, and uh, and he we talked about Verizon, you know, whatever. And I would share with him my ideas of, of avant-garde things, you know, at the time, and he thought that was pretty great. And and uh, in fact, I remember one time I was asking, I said, why don't we just instead of playing a regular concert, why don't we just get on the stage and have us have dinner served for? And, you know, put some microphones around and and have the sound and you know you're, you're kind of like Cage you know was more right. interested in ambient sounds than he was what was actually going on in the state and he thought that was great well six months later we did it but it was never he didn't acknowledge it was my idea <laughs> not that I mean Frank had plenty of ideas of his own <laughs> yeah so we you know so we got along that way and I think he. Uh, uh, he appreciated guys that could play. Um, you know, when they started out, the guys, you know, good good rock and roll players, but nobody was conservatory trained. And he, then he added uh, Don Preston and Bunk Gardner. And then he added the, the fabulous Ian Underwood, who's probably, probably the best musician I ever played with. Ian was just beyond the beyond. It's, I mean, the stuff he could sight read, uh, it was just, <laughs> I couldn't believe it, you know. But that is the transition point where Frank starts addressing more of what he needs from his contemporary classical roots, yeah. integrated more into the mothers. I think it's it's really your appearance on the scene and, of course, the continuation by having Ruth this becomes a like a very important part of his sound world to have percussion and tune percussion and lots of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, you have to remember, uh, I don't know your age, but in, in the 60s, um, very few guys, you know, played in odd meters or or mm -hmm. anything other than it's either a waltz or a march mm -hmm. and um in fact i remember uh, don ellis told me one time he, he he came to my house by accident anyway we spent the afternoon chatting and he said the only reason that he that he hired uh was it steve steve bonahan or i, I think that's his name uh in new york because he said he was the only guy in new york that could play in five I said, you're kidding. And he said, no, I mean, that's the way it was. And people weren't doing that then. So uh, <clears throat> so it, I think, I, I feel certain that Frank saw in me something that he could use and to develop his own concept and his own ideas. I think, I mean, I was part of that. Yeah, and, and it's also interesting to me that there was any kind of collaboration with guys in the mothers whereas i heard a quote of frank from someone who worked with him frank said i don't um i don't collaborate i accommodate yeah that's well that's probably true yeah i i don't i don't think uh with the exception maybe don preston i don't think anybody ever shared credit with him on anything he did I mean, in terms of composition, 
Right, Don had the uh, Eye of Agamotto. Yeah, I don't remember what it was. Yeah. He, we, he did uh, a couple of things. I remember we rehearsed them, but we rarely if ever used them. So I don't know where that went. And, and hell, I didn't know anything in those days. I mean, I don't know who was writing what. Although I, I just assumed it was all Frank's stuff. Um, but it was, you know, he it, it came up with a lot of great ideas and he had the... Um, um, you know, he had the forceful personality to do it, and he had a, uh, a good he had a good sense of the absurd, and he had the brain, and he had the gift of gab when he needed it, um, and he had the material. I mean, he had great ideas. I mean, I mean, for a guy to I mean, Frank never quit writing. He was he, I never saw him work as hard as Zappa. He just was always writing, always, always. Writing. It was like it was like like Bill, like like Don Lee. He, he was always painting or always drawing. It just always it never stopped, you know, hardly. And Frank was always writing, you know. We after the show, he go back to the room, and out come the music paper and the, whatever he was using, and he'd be writing. And so he never. And when he was at uh, Woodrow Wilson, you know, uh, in in Hollywood, there, uh, he never left the house. Very. Very rarely, and he's always working, working, working. But, and so, because I think he just really loved it, and he was driven. And I think a lot of the guys that get as far as Frank did, it, in light of the stuff that he was doing, it takes that kind of a person, you know. So, yeah, and and I'm wondering, Bill, to to what degree were you aware of the mothers? Before Frank comes on to the to the Beefheart scene, well, we were all in the same hometown, right? So I saw Frank when I was like eleven or twelve years old. Snuck into a gymnasium to play basketball, and they were on the stage playing doo wop. And uh, so I knew about him, you know, way early. That's uh, it was just it was for me, you know. How do I say it? He's already talked about the albums, but. Uh, freak out and absolutely free i mean i had that just changed my world you know going you know my i don't come from the backgrounds you guys come from i was a street blues player or you know surf music and stuff before the beatles but that was just i mean like art just said it's just like it was so strong and so different but still pop, put through a pop venue right or it wasn't jazz club music right it was sold in record stores like everything else. So I was totally, those were the two guys, Don, Don and uh, Frank, and before I was there. So that's why I was so easily picked up and drawn into uh, what that scene became, let's say. <laughs> and you guys had worked together, uh, you and Art had worked together before, correct? Before what? Before you you worked in uh, Beef Arts Group, no, no, you didn't play. I, no, I met Art, and uh, uh, he knows. I, I, I from the other interview, I know Art remembers the place. It was the Hullabaloo or someplace in Hollywood, and we were the act before them. And that's the first time he heard us. Uh, and that's when I met Art, and then it came social, and then the evolution that Art should explain is how he got into the group. But that's no, that was. Art was brought in right after Trump Mask. I and think that uh, was uh, 
Yeah, and I think that was, uh, as I recall, at the which was the Aquarius Theater, it used to be a hall. Oh, that's they right. Still, they would still call it Hall Boot, I remember. No, but, but I think it, you're right. It was a free concert for, uh, the, I think it was the LA Free Press or something. But they had, I mean, Jethro Tull was there and Don Ellis and uh, Candy, as I remember. <laughs> what and, a bill. <laughs> uh, we did our show and uh, and so I went out afterwards, and and a B part in the Magic Band came on. And I went out and I sat down at the audience, and I thought, Jesus, this is too much, man. This, these guys are something else. I think and that was the only gig that we material, you know, all that Trasma stuff was just fabulous, and I just I couldn't, you know, I just thought this is amazing. So I went back to, and that's when I met the guys. I had met Don earlier up at Frank's house, but I didn't. Um, you know, I, I, nothing came of that, but probably no, the Bill only time I, we I, played I, those I, tunes. What's that? I said probably the only time we played those tunes. That's all we were doing until so we had just finished it, or I, I think we did. I don't even know. I can't remember the date. Maybe we hadn't even recorded it yet. But that's really the only time I remember playing those tunes. Only we might have done one or two, you know, in later gigs. But that's the only time I remember doing Trout Mask. Well, of course, they were. They weren't long shows either. You know, they weren't long tunes either. <laughs> yeah, I think I don't know, maybe thirty minutes or something. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure, but yeah. I, I can't remember whether you, whether you had done Trout Mask or before or after that show. It's almost it's a, such an identical time period that I can't remember. You know, it's 1969. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Greg can't hear you. Can't hear you talking about 1968-1969 and and at that time the mothers and the magic band are are both working pro, you know working away on, on music but you're telling me that the magic band was would only gig that material once mm -hmm. we did a tune or two you know off you know during the time that art and i were playing together those all those years but never that material as a, a thing, you know, it was just one off. Exclusively. You're talking about huh? exclusively playing material. Yeah, it was just that yeah. material. Yeah. So that it had right. that heavy hit because yeah. even when we played the Trump Laughs tunes later, they filtered into a little more bluesy-ish way that we were playing later. So it kind of morphed into that. And the ones that we would pick from it would match more of what we were playing at that time, which is post decals. Right. Did a lot of decals along with Trout Mass and the other stuff. Yeah. Right. No, I want to get into that as well, but I, I'm curious, Bill, growing up where you did. So what what is your your impression of, of Zappa at that early point? Before I met him? Before yeah. I was around him? I thought, I mean, again, as soon as I heard Freak Out, I was done. It was like, are you kidding me? And then Captain Beefheart and Frank Zappa from the town, and I've seen both of these guys. I met Don, you know, I was in high school. And I'm going, these guys? And they're in the same town I live in? How did that happen? What the hell? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and that's kind of where the four of us that did Trout Mask, right, just before Art was in the group, we're all thinking the same thing, because by one by one, these teenagers are going into the group, right? So, but I was very impressed with Frank. I saw him on the, uh, what was it? It was a talk show. Uh, I can't Steve remember Allen. his name. Steve Allen. Allen Show, right. 
doing bicycle and all of that stuff. And I'm going, okay, this is new because you guys had that background. I didn't. But within the first two weeks I was in the group, I met Harry Parts. So I knew I was in a different world. <laughs> I don't think I ever heard you talk about that. You met Harry Parch? Yeah. Well, first couple were of weeks. Were you part friends or how did you meet no, him? No, that was, it was Frank. It was, uh, the, well, Art was there for my tryout. You were, you were rehearsing with the mothers in the basement with a bowling alley in it, right? Yeah. Tom Mix place. Yo, Tom Mix log cabin. Right. And that's where the Rolling Stones were. And my, that was my tryout. So I'm losing my track of thought here, forgetting where I'm going. But, um, oh, Zap and all that. So, um, yeah, I was primed for it. I mean, it was just too many things. Same town, all of that. Um, and then meeting him, of course. But you wanted to know before I met him. I mean, or I met him, you know, when I was a kid. But no, I guess I'm, I just am curious about... Uh early stages of of musicians who i mean we all know frank was a big doo-wop guy you know frank was an early early rock and roll kind of guy blues guy and it seems like that's the 60s the 60s is that exploding in, into the avant-garde mm -hmm. i mean freak out is what 1965 pardon isn't Freak Out 60, 65? 66. 66. Okay. Yeah, okay. Revolver and Freak Out are both 66. Okay. And, you know, obviously, that's the beginning of psychedelia in a way. But at the same time, there's an attitude that that is coming over where I, I think of Parch and Beefheart as being similar kind of isolated figures. I call them the rugged American individualist. You know, guys like Charles Ives, Carl Ruggles, these kinds of guys are like, they don't give a fuck. This is what they do. And, you know, you both worked with those guys. And I mean, that's just such an incredible thing for me to think about that, that, you know, you were there for ground zero of this stuff. And I know, Bill, you told me you didn't really know what it was that you guys were making, did you? I mean, you didn't really have a sense of it. And when the record came out, when Trout Mask came out, you had no sense of its impact. Too lost in the whole process, right? I was too lost in the process. And that, that I was schooled, like I said, Harry Parts in the first two weeks. Um, try to get this into art to, to that time but this was the whole influencing of both of those guys but frank was just what he was doing don was trying to influence us so we're going to go see paintings we're going to go see salvador dolly we're going to be talking about stockhausen and stuff right and that set the table through through all of that after the record and i go oh wow i'm playing avant-garde shit aren't i <laughs> i was just working so hard i couldn't tell what i was doing yeah <laughs> But then when Art joined the band and I got to hang with somebody, because there was a curious thing, because we were all eight years younger than Don. Art's halfway between us. And he wasn't part of the early part of that. So he livened, he opened the band up emotionally, musically, and I never learned so much from one single person as him. I mean, well, I'd love to I talk got, about... Was, go ahead. I'd love to talk about decals and really the... Uh, the moment where art comes into the band 
and now there's one guitar and there's marimba there's at times two or drums and percussion there's a lot more polyphonic bass playing <laughs> so it's, it's a very interesting period because it's kind of the same concept but i think as has been commented it's a little bit more reined in and a lot of people prefer decals to trout mass yeah <laughs> is there a question there <laughs> well i just wonder if you if you could tell me about that that moment where art's leaving zappa to go into beefheart and you know how this all sort of comes to be because rocket morton's still there right mm -hmm. but john french isn't but he isn't but then he comes back right so art can you tell me a little bit about that that intersection yeah well i uh i was kind of um how should i say uh, uh I think Don wanted me in the band and and so he because he kept saying come on up to the house and let's hear what we're doing hear what we're doing and at the same time I was getting fed up with uh Frank and uh well real quickly we had a when he broke up the mothers he want he had a he formed what he called a power quartet he wanted a smaller unit that was that was, there were good musicians but it was cheap to take on the road. And it consisted of him, of course, on guitar, Ian Underwood uh, on the piano and, and horns. I was playing drums and he hired a guy named uh, Jeff Simmons to play bass. And uh, so I was I, I was happy to have the, the association, you know, just leapfrog in another band, but I really missed the mothers. And I, and I to be honest, I resented the, that he broke it up. I didn't see any reason why he was doing that. Um, I mean, at the time, if I if I were in Frank's shoes, maybe I would have done the same thing. Uh, you know, it costed a lot of money to take eight or nine guys on the road, and and there were a couple of guys that maybe he wanted to replace with guys that were more advanced musically. Uh, but anyway, so this was in my mind, and, and we we were doing these rehearsals. And half the time, Frank wouldn't even show up. Uh, and then we played. Uh, so in, in that milieu, uh, Don uh, was kind of enticing me <laughs> out to uh, Woodrow Wilson, out, out to um, Ensenada Drive, you know, the famous Trout House, and uh, listen to the the music that they had done and, and just hanging out and bullshitting and you know, Don, Don would talk to the cows came home. I mean, it's around the clock. And, and uh, so I thought, you know, as a matter of fact, we had a we had a, we had one gig together with Beefheart and this quartet. And it was at the, a club called The Experience on the East Sunset Strip, joined on by Marshall Brevis, who owned a, a club with the same name, The Experience, after Jimi Hendrix and the experience in Miami. And we had played there a number of times and Marshall was very friendly to us and Frank was, anyway. So we we played that and it, I remember because I played with both bands um, and it, I don't think the concert amounted much, but uh, that was the only time I know that we played together. But anyway, after that, um, I mean, except for the 
Aquarius concert. I think that was one of the other times the two bands played together. Um, so would that mean that you played with Drumbo at that moment? Uh, yeah, must have been. Yeah. So um, I don't, you know, I don't really, really remember about that. I remember if, who was, you, if it was both, you played with both bands, then yeah. I'm assuming the other band had Drumbo. Must I'm have. not sure though. I don't know if if John was still there at that time. He might not have been. He might not have been there then. Because I th I'm thinking it was just uh, quartet. It could be, yeah. Yeah. Be. Well, anyway, I, so uh, so I started hanging out Remember. there, and and and, and I, I guess that nobody ever told me what to play, and uh, and of course with my uh, penchant for you know, freeform stuff, I would just play, you know, whatever sounded good to me. Well, what what I didn't understand was uh, they wanted me, or at least Don wanted me, to learn the parts that John played uh, on Trout Mass Replica. But nobody ever said that. They'd say, like, listen to the albums. And I thought, well, that I'll just listen to the albums and, and, and that'll influence me. But if you can make, if you can, as a musician, sit down and listen to that stuff <laughs> and use that as an inspiration to learn to play similar, forget the address. At least I couldn't. So I just, I thought, screw it, you know. So I, well, uh, I, I, was that before or after? I think that I think Bill didn't you and uh, didn't you and Don, uh, John start living at the at. at my place in Little Canaan for for a few weeks. Uh, me and Mark. But you and Mark, I mean, not John. John Preston had just moved out, and we we took his place because Don got a new girlfriend, and we were kicked out. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's so, what you do to kids. So we were play. We were whatever we were doing there. Uh, and so I came home one day, and uh, they had cleared out. I mean, Bill was gone. Mark was gone. None of their stuff was there. So I said, hmm, this doesn't sound right. <laughs> so I called on my girlfriend at the time and I said, hey, guess what? The guy's left. She says, you better get your, if you want to be in that band, you better get your ass out there and go go talk to him. So I said, okay. So I so I went out to Ensenada Drive and, and there was John. And I thought, oh, I've been replaced. <laughs> so we sat down and, and had this long conversation and uh, socializes them. So I was some I, I don't know it was Bill or somebody hit on the idea that since Bill was playing the only guitar part and a lot of times there was two guitar parts on the material, maybe I could play the second guitar part on the marimba. And I kind of preferred that anyway because that gave me something I could actually learn to play and play play along with Bill, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh so that's what we did. So, so the band became then a, 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 I guess, quintet then. With Bill as a ranger. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, I, th this is a whole other subject matter, but Bill was <laughs> a bit more than an arranger. <laughs> Understood. But I am curious about that process, guys, if you can recall how the decals material is put together. Well, the the basic big chunks that were not again things that were done right on the fly, you know. What's what's the thing? Da 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 da. 
Oh, it is Lick Mighty Kells, the tune. I can't remember the stuff anymore now. But he, that was this whistled part. But the chunks that were given to me, because it was the duet with Mark and I and the solo piece I did, right? And the things that were built in the way that Trout Mask were, was done, I was doing the same thing. And actually, through these video things I've been doing with the Trout Mask guys, found out from John that he was doing the same thing. You know, you would drop parts out, rearrange things, and just move things around to make it playable or plausible in some way. So a lot of it was that, you know. Uh, I even actually, at one point, I had combined guitar parts. So I made a, a, a combined two guitar part, one guitar part thing out of it, which was nuts because they're hard enough to play as it is. But I did a few tunes that way. And then that was just probably days before Art shows up and becomes uh, the marimba player. Right. So do you know the that, story of, of uh, Danny Witten? auditioning for crazy horse and learning both the guitar parts and coming in and playing a hybrid so this this recalls that uh yeah. I, i'd love to to hear any uh of you doing that combined guitar stuff too far too long ago man <laughs> too long ago no but that's I mean, I still, interesting i still remember some of those parts in my head i mean not I, if, if if you put a marimba in front of me, I probably couldn't play them, but I, I remember the a lot of that music. What happened was uh, once I became the in effect the second guitar player, uh, Bill came over to the house and he taught me all that because he knew it all. He knew all the parts, so he uh, he would teach me the parts. And the way we do it is he'd play them and I'd write them down in score form. And then I'd rehearse them until I memorized them, because I couldn't pick it up just from just from him playing it. You know, I say, "Oh, okay, I'll play." It. So, and I had to transpose a lot of it because some of it was—I mean, on the guitar you go plink like this, on the yeah. marimba you have like a tenth, you know, in one <laughs> hand. So uh, I had to transpose a lot of it. But uh, well, anyway, I. I <laughs> The fact is that, uh, um, as as far as I can tell, uh, I don't know John John's view on this, but a lot of the guys that uh, supposedly, um, you know, took down the parts that Don did. First of all, Don coming in and telling everybody what to play is is not exactly the way. It went. <laughs> And, you know, that's that that's great press. But that's, you know, John, Don did not have a clue as to how that stuff was going to go together. He didn't even know what went with what. And uh, so and I think a lot of the guys that actually were the arrangers or the band lead or the, 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 uh, the, you know, the guys that did the, the music work director. To, yeah, director. Music. Director. Uh, yeah. A lot of it was what they thought sounded good yeah i think because that's why every b-fart band sounded different don wasn't any different <laughs> so whoever put the music together it, it went through his filter and uh, you know that's that's how it came down so anyway that that was my view on it and, and even myself I, the, the few times when when i was tasked with taking something off this mishmash that Don had just banged out on the piano. Uh, for example, the the uh, the marimba break in the uh, glass of full of wine 
Cross for whiskey, cross for wine at whiskey or rye. Right. Yeah. Uh, I copied that off. Uh, kind of pulled it out of a thing that, that uh, Don had played on the piano. Well, I I kind of made it to what I thought sounded good. Yeah. So, and I'm sure if I did that, I'm sure everybody else did that. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there was a lot of almost like co, co composing going on. I'm sure. Uh, of course, nobody ever got any credit for it. It's true, but to those of us who know this kind of process, we give you guys partial credits. Because, I see. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I understand how these things go down. It happened with Miles's band. It happens with Mahavishnu. It happens where, you know, oh, it's like work for hire, you know, you're, you're working yeah. for me kind of thing. Um, but no, I'm here to talk about those those instances where clearly you guys are brought in to make sense of this stuff. And Bill, I was really curious about how Peon came together. Uh, he found the white oh, he's keys. He's talking, I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> he found the white keys. And so, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Oh, okay. So, you know, because uh, that, it was black keys and white keys. He was not so intermixed. It became black keys and we were playing in E flat and I tuned my guitar down low note to E flat. And so we're playing pentatonic stuff, E minor, right? And then with the white keys. And so he just did that one day. But again, I I had all these cassettes, you know, a whole, you know, suitcase full of cassettes. And because the cassette was invented, so it was no more reel to reel. And so... I, I, I honestly, and I, John did too, but, you know, because I've talked to him about it. Um, I tried to keep it as much his thing. I did not want to mess with it, but there was just ridiculous things that were unplayable. And then the, the string of things that would happen, and then there would be just one thing, no. Not that it's laid out like that, just no. Right. And then I had the cojones at that time. I finally grew some. Anyway through that time. And then I went, okay, I'm just putting this together in the most sensible way, honoring what he had done and the generalized idea of what he had done. And then I just wanted to be true to it, but I'm not playing stupid things. <laughs> and so I didn't add things. I didn't write things. I changed existing things and changed the order of them and dropped things out. And then I went up and played it for him. And then look, Chen, look what I've written. Well, right. okay. And that kind of opened the door then when I realized, okay, I got more rain than I thought I did, you know, more, more control over things than I thought I did. And so I don't think I, I didn't want to take that. I didn't want to do anything, but I did the best I could to keep it as close to what he had done. Because I think the way he created art in that way was really brilliant, that he would come out and sculpt the band while we're playing. You know, you get a bunch of hired guys, fuck you, I'm playing this, <laughs> you know, but it was like, you got these guys that are just trying like hell to play this stuff and he come up, no, do this. And that created some cool things and made, he made the tunes gel more, you know, when, when he would do sculpting and things like that, which happened more on Decals than it did in Trout Mask. Trout Mask, he was in bed the whole time. Uh, right, so he's more involved you're more involved, art's more involved. Yep. And it's interesting to me because at this point, 
it's almost like a more focused version of the trout mask situation. How I felt about it. Yeah, there's something there's just something more graspable about decals for me. Mm-hmm. Um and and also the the percussion stuff I just love. No kidding. <laughs> I, I just, you know, to me that's like it's a different band. It really it really is a different situation at this point. And and what's funny is while you would say art that you're trying to be the second guitarist it doesn't come across that way necessarily unless you just look at it like, oh yeah, right, there's only one guitarist. But you see again how the interlocking of parts has to work out. Can you guys talk a little bit about that in terms of working out the 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 marimba guitar and bass as a foundational pitch thing? Well, I just, uh... You know, I just learned the parts. I guess maybe Jeff had played them, or or maybe you had played. Whoever played them, the parts were always established. Bill just taught them to me, and and we we played them together. And so then it was an easy, it was an easy task for me to just play, play it along with the band. You know, insert the part into the into the band. Right. But the the the, the fact is, uh, when I came, Bill and I hit it off right away i mean i i just really felt a lot of uh, i don't know what the word is camaraderie or whatever it is with bill we thought alike we you know and uh in fact even uh some of the some of the second drum parts uh on uh, decals for example japan and a dish pan uh i was playing off of bill I and mean, that's who i was listening to more so than any than anything else so uh, so musically we got along great, and uh, I mean we, we all got along real good, really, to tell you the truth. So it so was easy to it was easy to play that stuff together. You know they had they had done the grunt work, they had done the hard work as far as the uh, trap mess stuff. You know, I mean that was already existing. So all I had to do was learn it. Yeah, something that I watched your other interview with Samuel. Art and uh, the way you described uh, when we lifted for golden birdies, when we lifted the clouds of folk, you know, the da 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 da, and uh, you know, how because he was describing in that thing, and I thought it was really cool because I hadn't thought about it since then. I was working so hard, I wasn't thinking this is in seven and these are as a 30 second note here, or so, you know what I mean? I wouldn't think I was just learning parts and feeling the rhythms. And um, that you had mentioned some guy had written out that part and that was like with all these rests because we were late <laughs> or whatever. But the, <laughs> but the thing was, is that it, like Art said, it, they floated and you would just, you would, you would just learn this, the shape of it. Yeah, and shape of it. because he was so damn good at it. And I was, I guess, hard headed enough to just work my ass off to play this thing. And I and I think art made me sound much better because he could he could feel where I was going to go. Yeah, you know what I mean. So he was chasing me because I couldn't chase him. There's no way. Okay, so that made it really easy because he had the chops. So I was just do, doing this. It was, and then when we did it later, we were in two different rooms, you know, and it was just locked in like that. So mm. yeah, that was, it was uh, it was just a perfect um, uh, memory. 
we remembered it just the exact same way every time. And and uh, and we weren't in the. I was because the marimba is so quiet, as you know, uh, Greg. I was in a separate room with and Bill, and we just started out. Well, we started out, and and we started playing. Right, no count and off. Right. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't even know if we did more than one take on that. I, I can't. I remember. think we just did it. I think. We, we I think did. we just did it in one take. <laughs> So it's and because it, it's not something that it, I like that term float because it was a, a series of notes that just floated and there was no one, two, one, two, three, four. It was, you know, it was just a ad lib float. And it was, you know, is it a so float it was, or is it follow the phrase? Well, it, there, there were phrases within the float. I mean, there were several mm -hmm. phrases. Yeah. Where does the, the, uh, Golden birdies come from uh, piano originally. How did I don't, do you remember? You remember he whistle, our, uh, You know, did he whistle it. Did did well, he? Well, wait, wait, wait. That's that would have been done. God, were you even in the group then? I can't remember. I can't re that part. I can't remember. Sorry, was was Art in the group and or I had he had done it and, and written it out and I had learned it because it is decals and then later on right. uh, Claire spot, but. Um, Damn, I can't remember if I. If, if I don't. I, I don't know where he got his poem. Well, he. I guess he wrote it. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But then, in, in inserted in the pauses were were parts from. Uh, um, I forget which piece it was. There were. Um, you know, Are you talking about the, the when the we did full wine? Golden I'm talking birdies. about when we did it on the stage. Golden right. Birdies. It was, but it was just that it was that part of that was in the middle of. Oh, that's uh, right. That's right. Uh, that we right. were just talking about. That's yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Right. That's what it was. <laughs> I thought well, I was the room. <laughs> but that was just broke. That was just broken up into in the section. Right. So we just took it into answers. Right. So he just took the pieces and he would say something and we'd answer it and that's how it ended up being on the stage. Right. But it was originally a solid thing that we did together. Right? Uh, okay. So Golden Birdies was just taking the pieces. That was Don's idea. I thought it was a cool thing. And then boom. And then you you were doing the drums on that too, right? I think you did the drums on the right and all of that stuff. So how in the hell did you did we overdub that part after? I can't remember because there's no way you're playing both parts at the same time. I can't remember how I was done. Sorry. Uh, overdub that idea. I, I'm I'm getting I'm completing the the the, the stage representation of it from the actual recording. Right. I, can't, I remember. I can't remember, but yeah, I did a lot of overdubbing on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, not a lot, but a good good amount. Why do you think he says webcore webcore at the end? I have no idea. Isn't that the original tape deck or something like that? It is well, web, yeah, web original yeah. radio, uh, right? But uh, but I don't understand how that follows after all the other lyrics. I don't know. <laughs> well, it was like I said, it was just a, a poem, and mm -hmm. uh, and you know, it's not <laughs> you know, it's Antelune not Robert here. It's not Carl Sandburg. <laughs> it's it's Don Bleed. So you're you know, it's you know, it's basically these pictures and suggestions. I think it's connected to the duck-like thing because of the, the duck that's in the pantaloon duck, webcore, webcore, web feet. Right, right. Might be some reference there. Well, he does like wordplay, yeah. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> Wordplay was... and, and picture association. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he did rhyme uh dinosaur with dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> dinosaur shoes. <laughs> so there were some happy accidents in that stuff. Uh well, quite a few, you know, where he happened he happened to sing. Like, he happened to sing the third on top of the, the the bass note that was going on, or he happened to, you know. But it was, believe me, he had no idea how that stuff was going to go on top of the music. But here's the thing that I I, I really want to ask you guys as well, which is, some people say Don wasn't a great singer, and some people say he was a fantastic singer. Is he a vocal stylist? Is he a great singer? What's your opinion, Art? I think he was a, a great blues imitator and person that, you know, he was he was uh, uh, he was totally enamored with uh, you know some of the old blues guys and uh, you know Lightning this and John that and Mississippi this. But, uh, so he he could imitate that stuff real well, you know, just like he could with the harmonica, you know. He, he, but uh, Don was uh, I, I don't think Don was a great singer. He, he you know he, he was a great actor. He was he, he was very powerful, and he, and he was a brilliant guy. There's no question about that. But all that all that Lindberger about him having a Five octaves. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just for the press. I mean, I don't even know if he had three octaves. I'll jump in when you're done, Art. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm just okay. reminiscing. <laughs> <laughs> On your dime, right? <laughs> anyway, um, I have a different idea because I heard him as a blues singer when he was a blues singer, right, in that band. I don't know that I had 14, 15 years old. I, I couldn't judge what was going on. But... I think the key thing is what Art was saying is that when he was imitating people, he was amazing. When it was just him, and as time went on, it got worse and worse. He he got worse. His pitch was worse. The stress of being on stage, he couldn't put well, definitely didn't know the lyrics and would just be so sharp and out of tune things. And it, it got weirder. But still, after that, he would sit down and imitate Bob Duro. And then he'd do a bebop thing and blow smoke circles through each other while he's whistling bebop. When he was not Don, when he was imitating something, the fucker was brilliant and he could sing. He was beautiful. He could sing when it was just me sitting there and him hanging out in his room watching football games or something like that, you know, or he'd get a beer or two in him, only two. And then he could really sing. Hmm. But I don't, I don't think it ever got recorded as good as what I heard when he was like that. So I do think it was there, but I just think this part, the schizophrenia made him, he needed a way to focus himself to do that instead of when it was just him, it was scary. And then everybody else paid the price for that fear he would feel. The persona, mm -hmm. taking on a persona like Bowie did and, and Gabriel did and and not being who who you really are in order to get through it. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's, Don, it's, it's interesting. I think both Don and Frank were very ill at ease around the people. 
and, and Don uh, Don would kind of thunder his way through it, and so that he would ever be exposed. And Frank was the same way. He, he, if, if it wasn't something that Frank wanted to discuss, he was lost. And he, 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 you know, he didn't. He had a very low attention span for anything like that. He always had to be about something he was doing or something that he thought. Hmm. Uh, and Don was kind of the same way. I think he hid his his feelings. I mean, this really sounds hokey, but his his <laughs> his, his feelings of inadequacy. Uh, by just blurting out this other stuff that, that hid what he was mm -hmm. what he was really feeling. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I remember one day we were up in uh, I'm probably sure Bill remembers this. We were up in Trinidad at the at the first place where we where we all lived at for a while, and uh, Elliot had joined the band, and because Don never sang with the band, he never rehearsed with the band, very 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 rarely. Once in a while, it'd be a jam or something. But uh, so one, so Elliot, I think, and Elliot was just a, kind of a very outspoken kind of guy. He just <laughs> blurted out what he was thinking. And Don came over one day, and uh, and pretty soon, uh, Elliot looked at him. He said, "Get your ass in here and sing this shit, man." He says, "Yeah." He says, "Why aren't you? Why aren't you singing in these <laughs> rehearsals? And why? Are, what kind of deal is it? How do you expect us to?" And I thought, what's Don going to say? And Don just kind of shut up and kind of wheeled his way out of it. And uh, I don't think it really changed anything. But Elliot hit on it. He, he just he just wouldn't, you know. I maybe it maybe it's because uh, he was he was afraid of him showing up that it was just actually spontaneous stuff that he was doing, you know. Uh, you know, laying this poetry down on top of this powerful music. Of course, later on we did more commercial stuff, and then he had a part, and it was allegedly supposed to do it the same way every time. <laughs> and uh, then that was a little bit different, you know. So, yeah, so that's kind of another question, really, is the transition out of the more avant-garde stuff into Clear Spot and trying to find another way through for him. Did you guys feel invested in that or did you feel put off by that? How did you feel about the transition? Go ahead, Bill. Um, at first I was fine. Okay, if we go like uh, Spotlight Kid, I hope I have the right name. I keep calling it a different name, but Spotlight Kid, Clear Spot. In that time period, Spotlight Kid was such a difficult period for me and I don't like the album. So it's hard to know if I'm attaching my emotional stress through that but the tempos were slow because uh, these tunes are i can't sing my lyrics well dude slow we can slow them down tell us what to do that's your problem stupid so then we did this very uh, laborious album duh, duh, duh. So it felt like a ghosty heroin album or something and uh but i i thought the idea after spotlight kid was just a bad period i thought it was a good idea and then within the same year we did clear spot i think and that was starting to get more powerful. And the band was so fucking powerful when we had Art and John in the band with the marimba double kit, Roy on bass and Mark doing guitar. That band was by far me standing on a stage, the most powerful band by a long shot. I mean, it was powerful. And so that started to come across in the recording level of their spot. We had golden birdies and some edgy stuff. Some of the tunes were nah, it's a little too foo-foo for me, but whatever 
and it was recorded well. We had a month budget. I think we were in the studio for a month with Ted Templeman. Oh, yeah. So I was good with that. Okay, I was I was really good with that. Then when it got to the last one and we were working so hard, then it was just, you know, <laughs> it was just shit. The music was, we were trying, okay, we're going to be commercial. Don was married and he wanted a new car. He wanted money. Okay. So that's what that was. And then he started getting controlled by the DiMartinos and all of that. Right. Right. Okay. So I was okay at first and then not on that last one. And then when it really was bad, the obvious thing to do is like, okay, we're doing this now. And even on our original interview, Greg, I think I said, suffer for art. Okay. Suffer for crap. No. People love that <laughs> in the comments. <laughs> I can't love that. Zoot says, suffer for art, maybe. Suffer for shit, no. Exactly. And it was just kind of obvious. <laughs> the great quote, Bill. Um, so that's that's interesting, too, because now, can you talk about that same thing, Art, and give me your yeah, I, I personally was all for it. I mean, I, I was really pushing to, uh, to do more commercial stuff. <clears throat> and uh, for the simple reason that, you know, we'd sell more records, we'd get more money for the gigs, and we'd improve our life. You know, the the, the starving artist is, is neat only in hindsight. <laughs> it's not fun when you're doing it. Mm -hmm. At least it wasn't for me. And uh, so I was, I was pushing for that. In fact, even there was a couple of uh, songs that I tried to get them to, I said, why don't, instead of, Instead of using this part that goes from five to seven to six, I said, why don't we start to smooth it out and make it all in four? And, uh, and he kind of looked at me, you know, it, it didn't make any yeah. Don <laughs> would not understand that because he, he couldn't count to four twice. You know, he just had no idea of anything like that. But I was pushing for it, and I was really hoping that we would go that route. Now, in hindsight, it was a big mistake. You know, we should have kept doing the decals and and uh, trap my stuff and and maybe something even more refined than that. But nothing, not trying to be a commercial artist because we weren't that way. And uh, I, Don was not really capable of writing commercial stuff. And uh, so, but we did. And and like Bill said, when we finally got the Templeman, I thought, well. We've arrived here because mm -hmm. Templeman was was a was a great guy and he yeah. was a hit maker. Uh, I don't the, the odds of him taking a ragtag bunch of such as we, such as we was uh, thin, but uh, he really uh, he he made that sound album sound about as good as you can get it to sound. And there, there was some good stuff on the album, mm -hmm. and I thought we were heading in the right direction. And even when we were rehearsing and, 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 and in effect composing a lot of the material for Unconditionally Guaranteed, I thought, this stuff is great. I mean, I remember, uh, like that, remember that song Peaches, Bill? Yeah. It's kind of like a blues to da 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 and uh, and and when we finally got away from all those ridiculous 
uh, pauses we'd have in rehearsals and have these big talks. And all that stuff went out the window, you know, with the DiMartino there. And I think because they were real masculine guys, they weren't going to put up with that crap. Okay, so, uh, I got to stop you though because this is so fascinating to me. They're able to to discipline him and focus him. Well, no. they just they just kept him away. They just kept him away from the rehearsals. Yeah, because Don was in a rehearsal, he would think some far out shit, and he he tried to stop everything, and and have this big discussion about strawberryism, and uh, you know, so he just kept them away. So we got a lot of, a lot of stuff done, and uh, let's uh, let's say Alex was in the band then, wasn't he? Bill? Yeah, 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 Alex. So with with Don out of the way, and with with Alex being a good, strong, realistic. Uh, influence and and I was all on board with that and it it kind of changed the whole uh, style of, of stuff that we'd been doing before. I, mean, I don't mean the music. I'm talking about the well the music too, but the way we uh, rehearsed it and the way it was uh, composed and all that stuff. So we had what I thought was a great product, and we went down there and the the recordings of that went well, and uh, and I felt. I never felt more confident in my time than I did then. I'd finally arrived at what I thought was uh, a, a good drum time. And I've, and I've got a lot of compliments on it. So we finished it up. Bill knows the story. We finished <laughs> it up. It was, I don't know, a month went by or how long it was. Don had to put the vocals on. And I just was very happy about this. I was thinking, we're going to get a lot of work out of this. And, uh, and some of the stuff could actually be heard on the radio, you know, on AM radio or whatever. And uh, so, so a few, uh, you know, a few weeks go by. Well, they finally set up uh, a box of, or, or made a copy or whatever it was of the record of the completed album. And uh, Bill and Mark uh, were real good friends with the guy that owned a, the record store in Arcadia, California. So uh, we all got together and we went over to the record store and we put the record on and turned it up and, and fired it up. And, and, and the first couple of times I said, holy shit, this, this, is, this is not good. And then, and then it got worse and worse and worse. And, the, and at the end, I just looked up at the, in fact, I looked at the guy, uh, I, I don't remember his name on the building. Dave, his name Dave, is Dave. Dave, Dave, that's right. I says, Dave, I I can't believe this. I says, I'm really sorry about this. This is bad. And what, what they had done was, in order to get his tracks on there, mostly at a low vocal, low range, they had they had put the tracks down so low that it was almost incidental. And and you could hear his voice, and the, and that was okay. But it just the, the it was just crap. It was it was a terrible mix. Uh, some of the songs, you know, his lyrics, you know, good the way he sang them, and uh, geez, I just and so well. And long story short, that's what kind of that was the beginning of the end, right there. So <laughs> yeah. that's when we all got together and decided, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. This so what working. happens then? Did you feel the same way, Bill? Oh yeah, I re we remember this differently. Because he's older than me, even you know, <laughs> remembering anything. But um, 
it's so long ago and, and it was intense. I remembered that I we were still in the the hotel where we had, were staying, motel or whatever it was, uh, when we had come down to do the recording. And I went to Art's room and said, I'm done with this. This is crazy. Art remembers it that we had the meeting when we got back up to Trinidad where we were living. And I know that's when we had the big meeting and stuff, but I thought I had gone to your room and said, you know, Art, I gone, I've done all this work, you know. Now they're hiring guitar players to do solos and the solos suck. All this time, and I'm not going to get paid again, and we're going to go have to go play this shit to an audience that's going to get pissed off. And we won't get paid again, so... But you remember it that it was later. So we we remember the same idea. I just remember it in a different sequence. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right, Bill. Uh, I think you did uh, come and we talked about it. But I, I remember, and I don't remember the syntax, but Alex and I spent a lot of time together and because mm -hmm. we both like to drink. <laughs> and we were, good, you know, good buddies. And he was just kind of a guy. He wasn't some kind of a weirdo. So uh, I was, so I was a weirdo. <laughs> well, not really. I I mean, not well, anyway. But uh, <laughs> so Alex and I started kicking around. I said, "This can't go on. You know, we can't, we can't keep this relationship up with the band. We can't, you know, this kind of music. It's, it's not working." Uh, Don, you know. So that's when we came to Bill and Mark, and we all had a meeting in the mines and uh, had several meetings, and that's that's when we decided that. Uh, We'd go ahead and do this stuff, but we had to get a lot more money per week. We had to get, you know, re, re, return fare home from wherever we were going to go, Europe or wherever. And that's when all the stuff hit the fan. So, so the Demartinis were, were not handling business well? Group business? I, well, I don't I know. Think so. I think so. I mean, that you know, they were... You know they were they were uh, uh, you know two bit. Uh, they were good guys and I liked them both, but they were they weren't you know they they weren't Ted Templeman, but they were producers and uh, they they'd done a few things. In fact, Andy had done the what was that Rhythm of the Rain, uh, some popular, you know. So they they'd been around, but they weren't you know the A A type people. But I don't think there was anything wrong with what they were doing. Business wise, I mean, it wasn't. I mean, we how, didn't get to we how, didn't get to any business. Yeah, how much? We, how we didn't get there. We we recorded an album. We don't. We haven't been on tour. We didn't get paid. Did we get? Maybe did we get union scale? Maybe I don't know. Usually yeah. it was not, and they just paid our bills and showed me that. Oh, you owe us thirty grand, but we're gonna let it go. <laughs> you know, yeah. but you know that was just how it always worked, but. Uh, well, meanwhile, they they were on the hook for uh, these contracts for the tour coming up. Yeah. So we ain't going. And yeah. so uh, they came up and tried to talk us into doing it. And we stuck together and said, no, we're not going to do it unless we get X amount of money, which I think they might have been able to pay. But then, of course, that would have been more money out of their pocket. <laughs> so uh, so that ended it. And uh, God, it was God awful, too. I, I felt I, I actually felt sorry for Don because they hit they threw together this bullshit band, you know, uh and nothing wrong with the guys, but they didn't know how to play that kind of stuff. And uh, and and later Don and I became buddies again and hung out a lot later later on. But 
he told me, he said, Jesus was terrible. He said he'd, he'd be on a stage and he said, people would yell out, where's Rockhead Morton? Where's Sue Horn Rolo? And he'd have to make something up on the spot. And, but they had to do the, the gigs, you know, because they, they, they had a contract. So yeah. they, that's the way I went. It's a mixed feelings for me because, you know, how do you feel sorry for somebody that treated you that way? Well, what time. I meant was I, I didn't kind of put myself in his shoes. That, oh, and, yeah. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. Yeah. But no, I didn't. <laughs> I had a different relationship with them than you did. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's true. I, I, and I did. I felt I, it wasn't how I wanted to do it, but I just couldn't. There was no way I was going to go, okay, I want to help Don out and go on this tour and not get paid yeah. playing music that I'm not into. Yeah, I remember they tried to split you off and the. Uh, because then you could have taught somebody else to do, you know, mm -hmm. but you wouldn't do it. So no, done. Anyway, that was the, that was the uh, that was the erstwhile little bitty beginnings of Mallard. Yeah. By that time. Yeah. When the... So 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 how long before uh, you guys are talking about Mallard? I don't know exactly, but Mallard was a Mark Boston thing, actually, uh, at the beginning. Uh, he had stayed in contact. I think Ian Anderson was touring because this was Ian's influence, right? Um, touring and, and Mark said he wanted to do this. And then I came down from where I was living to LA and we did a recording session of a tune that Ian had written called The Magic Band. Now, was and, Ian previously a Beefheart fan? I think so. I, well, okay. the way I heard it, yeah, I, well, yeah, I heard it because there was an interview he did, somebody sent me, um, where he was talking about, Don called him and he said, you need us as your opening act. And that's how that happened. And he said, Don called him. That surprised the shit out of me because I didn't think, you know, Don would do that. But anyway, that was the connections, I think. And then we opened, we were their opening act for two tours or two, I, I can't remember. Or, you know. Is that Many right? weeks. Huh? Many weeks. Yeah, yeah. During Thick as a Brick? Yeah. Yeah. It runs my mind. It was like 10 weeks off and on, but I yeah. maybe yeah. it wasn't that much. But we spent a lot of time with them, and I got yeah. to know the guys. I really liked them. Me too. But every every night we were on the stage, you'd look off to the look off to the sides, and they were sit, standing there listening to everything we played. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. And he was big in the UK as far as Beefheart's career, right? Who? What? Beefheart did pretty well UK wise. Yes, yes that's that was our stronghold. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but anyway, the Mallard thing to get back. Um, Mark had, I went down and listened to this song, and then there was some backing track or something. Mark sang it, and I'm going, okay, this is weird. And then I went out to dinner with Ian one night, some very spiffy place, and he said this Mallard thing should happen, and he says you and Mark should try to do this and get this together and and I'm going okay well there's some impetus talking to this dude that's you know got you know I like the dude he's he was a friend and he's got the backing and he's the one with his truck and all of that because of English tax law he needed to spend money on things right he had a ballet company and he did Mallard but Mark Mark was the one that started it but then what you know I, I shouldn't go to the end of it already but I wore out because I had to do the business. You had to and do the business. I was doing the business thing and all of that. You know, I was the leader, right? And Art saw the writing on the wall after the first album went, 
here we go again. You know, it was fun though. We had fun that that one uh, where were we in Leslie when we were staying there doing the recording. Leslie. Leslie, yeah. It was uh the Devin. Yeah, <laughs> you know this shit. But anyway, it started because of Mark made that connection, then then I'm in it, and then I had to have art, of course. And then John French was going to be involved, didn't want to do it. Then we did a couple of his songs, two or one, I can't remember. You know. John was going to be the singer. John yeah, was going to be the singer. Yeah. yeah. Well, to be honest, John was a better singer than Don. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but, the, but the guy that Bill got, Sam Galpin, was great. I mean, he, he was he, he had a similar voice to Don's, but he could sing in tune and he could remember the same thing and do it twice. <laughs> how did you find him, Bill? Um, how did we find him? Um, we were looking for a singer and um, Bill Schumo, the manager, uh, through his connections, we started auditioning a singer. And there was a guy named Jackie Lomax, I think was a pop artist, singer. And I interviewed him and it was, we went over to the house and stuff. And then I met this other guy that was doing vodka and cornflakes. And I'm going, oh, Ooh, okay. okay, maybe not. <laughs> but he said, Sam Galpin had done Joe Cocker demos. And I went, oh, interesting. And he played in Vegas and did country piano and tunes and stuff like that. So we had an edge to him. And then I met Sam and it was pretty easy. We just, I think we played a couple of tunes. I can't remember. How, how that happened hardly anything and then we're flying to england to do this album so he didn't <laughs> so we're cutting in his parts by half syllables and stuff and i'm trying to help him sing all these things so it was a lot of work <laughs> but he had the voice so once he learned the songs it was easy and it would have been easy to continue right because he would have done the work and known what to do he had the voice and he had uh experience yeah you know, he, uh he at one time he was a country singer by the name of Hoghead, and uh, <laughs> and he got hooked up uh, with one of the studios, one of the big record companies, and they would uh, to the point where they'd actually and he lived on Huntington Beach, they would actually send a limousine down for him and t and bring him up. They were going to make him the next I don't know what Willie Nelson or something, they thought, and then all of a sudden they found somebody else they liked better. And they just dumped him and dropped him like a hot potato. So, but, so he had to say so he was a good guy. You know, I got along with him. Everybody got along with him. It was such a relief to have a, a kind of a more natural human being <laughs> to work with. But uh, those were fun sessions. You know, that was at Martin Barr's place, the guitar that's, player. That's, yeah, right. I couldn't think of his name. It was Martin Barr. Yeah. And the, uh, the beautiful stadia and uh, they let us use what was the name of that mobile recording studio Moulin Rouge or something like that yeah 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 it was red that was, big that was red Ian's yeah yeah well, big that Mercedes truck with 24 tracks in it he yeah. was owned by Chrysalis Records I don't remember but they were Chrysalis. that was a lot of fun yeah. and I you know because I was very reluctant to I'd already quit the music business and I was back in Pittsburgh with my father trying to work with him and uh the guys were after me to come over and play and i said the only way i do is i get the money in advance and because uh, I, I just didn't want to get screwed again and so it was barry barlow who put up the money for me they sent me the money in advance 
and I went over there and uh, we I think we did the whole album like 10 days yeah. and it was really a lot of fun and and that that was good material and it was mostly Bill's Bill composed most all of that and uh well anyway and and I thought and Bill was I don't even remember at the time but Bill was saying look he says uh you got to come with us because we can we can really do this and I said I I just you know, I already made up my mind to get out of the music biz, and I just because he said he didn't think he could do it anymore with Mark, and um, he just and he was all the all the responsibility was on him, which I can't blame him. That is too much, and so. But then I, I forget how the other album came out. But Bill, how did the the Mallard material come together? Um, various people, pieces, and stuff. Again, you know, uh, Mark doing a, a few things, uh, me, friends that were, you know, I wasn't a lyricist, but I had to really kind of work with people. My friend David Wagstaff, a high school buddy, and Ted Alvey, who somebody I met in uh, the Eureka area where we were living in Northern California. And they were writers, and both of them, and both good. And so I'd work with them, you know, so, but I took, I took credit. Maybe I was a little hungry then for taking credit because I was working with them to write the lyrics. It wasn't like they just wrote some lyrics and that was the song. It was like I was helping them construct it around this thing. So, and especially on the second album. And the problem that I had, I guess, is uh, it started getting to cook for Mark and things who liked country music. And Sam Galpin, a singer, a country singer. Sam had the vocals, but I'm not a country music fan. And so, being diplomatic, that's when I lost interest on the second album is because uh, uh, it was just going in a direction I didn't want to go. So the tunes that are like, there's one in nine, I think, I can't remember them now, right? But um, uh, those were the tunes and I was listening to jazz stuff and I was studying. I was starting to really practice and study after the B-Fork thing. So that was learning music and learning the things that you guys have known your whole life, you know, that was an important time for me. So it started influencing music and my taste in music and country wasn't, it was going too far that way. It was going to be, okay, we're going to be pop and all of this. And I'm going, if I'm not going to get paid. I better do something I really like. And it was just the same thing. So then I just went, okay, I'm done. I needed to pull the plug. It has been at 26. While you were 26. The, huh? the, second band I, the second band, I don't know, but the, I don't know anything about it. But the, the band that when I played the recorder in the, the band Mallard, mm -hmm. uh, that was a good band. It was. And we played well together. And I think had I taken an interest in it for sure, uh, I don't know about the others, but uh, I think we could have really done something with that. I, but I don't think they would have believed it if we'd have turned into a country band. Nobody would have believed it. No, it just, it just, it was a mishmash, you know, so the lack of direction, you know, but the, the, the yeah, just the country thing was too much for me. But it was hard for me when Art left because the fucking motor of the whole thing is gone now. Okay. And bless his heart, George Gata and for playing and stuff, you know, but I had played with one of the greatest musicians I've ever seen, you know, and he's in this band and I'm going, this is great. And then when it went, it was hard for me to do it again. So after the second one, I was just, it was leaving that it, the first one was raw and it had propulsion and had angst and stuff in it that it was interesting to me. Second one got too smooth and polished and stuff and I didn't know what I was doing. I just needed to go hide and practice. 
have you gentlemen seen the, the mallard live videos that are on youtube i have art's not oh. in them yeah art's not in any of them no it wouldn't be because i so left you, right you, after didn't, you never played live with the band ah. no well listeners there are mallard documents on youtube i recommend you have a look yeah, I, I almost feel as though Mallard is is enjoying somewhat of a resurgence in interest, or maybe not a resurgence, but a surgence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the money's just piling in, man. <laughs> right. I had a, just as a side note, you know, because I'm starting to do these projects about trout masks, and um, I was, I wanted Mark Boston needed some help. He's, he's got some health issues and stuff. And well, we're all 75, right? And um, I thought, how can I get him some cash and start thinking, okay. And then this company of those videos you're talking about, the, the Mallard videos, they said, okay, we want to put these out as some kind of product. And I go, okay. And so then they offered me like 3,500 bucks to do so. Like I had the rights and I go, oh, well, and you up that figure. I don't even want to write back to you at $3,500. And I was just going to do this for Mark. And I thought, was it okay, maybe this can happen. You know, so get him a check. And then they wanted me to take all the, 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 all the legal things. Like, I'm supposed to own it. They want me to take it in the shorts for all of that. And they just make some money off of something that exists, right? And I go, okay, this isn't working. So I bailed on that. So, it's, so I'm aware of those videos. Do you have any interest in ever playing that music again bill Oof. That, the bigger answer is playing any music um a, a friend of mine that was a drummer worked at berkeley school of music and retired has been sending me tunes and they're difficult i can't even do those anymore it's it's my memory is such that it's hard and it takes a lot of work and I just want to play and not have this bank account attached to what I'm playing. I'm just trying to practice and just play and not do that anymore. I'm teaching and that's keeping my head into it. And I get to learn. I get paid to learn. And that's that I've just got to stay there right now. You know, and, and yeah. you know, and it could it could change, you know, but my life changed so much in the last few years because of health issues and stuff, which has caused memory issues and so it's hard to do it i just don't want to feel bad trying to do things that are so hard so i i play a lot of free music <laughs> right but i have to tell Har you harmonic harmonic now i don't know what oh Keanu okay <laughs> yeah and and uh and ornette is is uh someone that figures large in all of our lives in many ways yeah. um but bill i have to tell you since we're having this moment the one record that people come up to me about more than the, the Matheny sign of four and the Cecil record is the Zuthorn Rollo record that I did with you. They just come out of the woodwork and they say, oh man, I love that Zuthorn Rollo record. Is he going to do another one? And that record really landed. And, and, and I, I'm so proud of that record and, and, and really how we made it happen under the circumstances we made it happen how good your writing is on that record. 
well, thank you. slide playing, making a case for slide in, in, in a purely instrumental situation. I, I just, I, I love the record. I love that people love it. And I just wanted you to know how much people have responded to that record. And I hope that you like that. <laughs> well, I love it. Art needs to hear this though, because here I've had two, two great percussionists in my life, you know, and art was so formative to me because I was so young and he was, he had studied and we were talking about him playing card table with BBs being dropped on it by John Cage and stuff. And I'm going, what the fuck? You know, and that just changed my life, you know, and the ability. Then when you, we did, you don't know this art, but when Greg did this Bozo album and he's here playing in town and they're doing badass shit. I mean, I'm going, uh, and he wants to play with me. I got to, I got to get to work. So anyway, we did this, but it was, he was in New York. I'm here and I'm flying around doing all this, but he set that fucking thing up. He set that up because he was the first tracks. I'd midied up all these parts. And so he's putting his percussion on then I come back and I go, shit, my job's done. This is easy. They were my tunes, but he 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 blew air into them first, and it was badass. So you need to know that part, right? Well, you know, you know that. You were there. <laughs> well, it's a good variety of tunes, you know, and it's not beef heart. And and there's just so it's Bill. And it's and it's Bill at that time and Bill being being zoot, but but Bill, it's like a new thing. And I think that some people had expected it to be a beef hardian affair, mm -hmm. but they were pleasantly surprised in other ways. And I I loved that I could play vibes on it and that you know we could have our guitar and uh vibraphone trading and things going on that that's just it's a really cool record so look for it online folks if you don't know the Zoothorn roller record we saw bozo under the sea highly recommend it so it's it's out there on the on the internet somewheres thanks for the plug <laughs> was that the uh was that the title of your book as well bill no lunar no. notes lunar notes is the book Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. And if you can no, this, find a copy of Lunar Notes, folks, if you care about this kind of stuff, Bill has a beautiful book called Lunar Notes. Good book. Art, I'm so curious. You mentioned that that you had contact with Beefheart later on. Could you tell us anything about what those exchanges would have been like? Yeah. Uh, well, I moved back up to uh, the Eureka area. Uh, McKinleyville, Trinidad in uh, 80, the end of 84. And I'd already got my chiropractic doctorate degree. And uh, I was, I practiced in Hollywood for a year. And I suddenly recalled Trinidad. And, and I thought, well, I'll go up there because I wanted, I wanted to stay in California at the time. Um, <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying that today. But anyway, <laughs> stay there. And uh, so I ended up, so I went up there and uh, it, big long story short, it, it, it was perfect. So I, so we moved up there and I started open chiropractic practice. Well, I was aware that Don uh, was still living up there and I forget how we, I think he called me or something. And uh, we got together and then he'd, he'd come in to my little clinic for treatment. I'd adjust him you know, chiropractically. And uh 
so that kind of started a relationship. And then, uh, you know, I was <laughs> I was partying pretty hard in those days. And, you know, I'd be out uh, drinking a bunch of beers and I'd always late at night, I'd stop over to his house and he'd be up painting, of course. So we'd sit there and bullshit. And, uh, you know, we got together as a couple, I mean, as a, as a quartet a few times with Jan and my wife at the time, uh, Judy, and uh, got together. So, we, you know, but it was, uh, and it was off again, on again. And then uh, we had a falling out. Uh, we got in a big argument and, and that was that. But Don, uh, it kind of, you know, hurt my feelings because, you know, Don got very sick, you know, with the uh, uh, MS. And uh, which I, I mean, I'm I'm not a I'm a, not a neurologist, but I think it has something to do with the cocaine and all that kind of thing. At any rate, uh, so but he was still coming to me. Well, it he'd come in and we he he'd be standing there and he'd start to sway. And uh, and I say sit down and, and I and, and but then I'd I'd adjust him, especially his lower spine, and he'd get up and he'd be all right. But then, then he came in and it, it was starting to get worse. And so finally I told him, I said, Don, I said, you got to go to the neurologist, man. There's something more to it than, than anything I could possibly help you with. And I I didn't know what it was, but I knew it had a neurological disorder. And so he hardly wanted to hear it. And so I spoke to Jan. I said, you got to take him down to uh, get him diagnosed, you know, which they eventually did. But I read later what Don had told some interviewer. He said that if I had kept treating him, he wouldn't have gotten MS. <laughs> and I thought, oh man, you know that that's, you know, because I could have helped. I couldn't have helped him at all with that. I mean, you know, anymore, I could have helped somebody with a with cancer or, or a heart attack. You know, it just it's, anyway, it really it bothered me. But uh, that's the way he was. You know, whatever came was mine. And he had a, uh, you know, he had a bad end. It's, you know, uh, you know, I didn't see him during that period because we already uh, ended our friendship more or less. But you know, the last uh, I don't know how long, year or more of his life, he he was just bedridden, couldn't speak, couldn't you know. And uh, that's that's a hell of a way to get down. You know, he he had the bad form of MS. You know, there's some forms that aren't aren't as bad. Right. kind of die with it rather than from it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've, I've known several people that carry on a normal life and they, they just die of natural cause. But he had the kind, he went down pretty fast, pretty hard. So it was, it was pretty rough. You know? Do you think that he felt appreciated as either a musician or an artist, a visual artist? He felt appreciated? Yeah. Did he feel as though... You know, he had it had been worth it to change over to painting. Did he miss music? I mean, what what was that? I think he was. I think he was happy to get out of the music business for a whole bunch of reasons. The obvious reason is that he he just could do it by himself, and nobody else was involved. And then if somebody liked a painting, sell it to him. That was that. And there's no baloney involved, like like with the music business, which is probably second only to the. Acting business is a, is a most rotten 
business in the world. I mean, it's just, just rotten to the core, top to bottom. Plus, I think Don was holding up under a lot of illusions that people had about him. I think he would, I think he knew he was in to, to be frank, knew he was in some ways a phony, and he got, and it was very hard to keep that up. You know, uh, you know when you had to do that all the time. You know, he had to always be, mm -hmm. always be on, and always be on stage, and always have the perfect comebacks, and uh, which he was very good at. But I mean, that must have put him under a lot of pressure. And, and I think that was the reason why he developed a lot of nervous problems, you know, because he'd he break out and, you know, because, you know, to, to, to try to do that 24-7, I mean, it, it, I don't know. Plus, he was he was a very unusual guy anyway, you know, brilliant, but, uh, um, you know, he's just a strange guy, you know, a unique guy, a cornucopia of, of hip. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, that's a good way to put to the it. Point where he yeah. he'd influence people around him to try to be like him, you know. Was <laughs> so he? A I big think leader? once he shed all that, he didn't have to worry about any of that anymore. He didn't have to worry about a, a new band and, and and going through the whole thing again and get somebody to 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 be the commander of the band and, and distribute the music and compose and and direct the music and all that kind of stuff. I I, I think that was probably a big relief to him, especially. <laughs> After he met, uh, I forget the painter's name that helped him so much, big name painter. Wow. After he met him and realized that he could make big bucks off some of his canvases, there it was. Yeah. And he had, a, and then he had a nice house and, uh, um, you know, right on the bay there in Trinidad. And it was, a, it was a beautiful setting. It really was nice. So I think he was very relieved. Oh, and he could concentrate on painting, which he did on and on. But did he care about music anymore? I don't think so. I, I you know, we, I used to go over there, and, like I said, and we'd spend hours, and, and I'd play him all kind of stuff, and uh, even some uh, Hank Williams and stuff like that we talk about. But I, I don't know if he, I don't, I don't know if he really. Did you guys? Did you guys ever see Beefheart and Ornette together? Oh yeah. What was your question? Did you ever see Beefheart hang out oh, with? Yeah, Ornette? yeah, yeah. They, uh, Ornette was a big fan of uh, the band, and uh, he brought him around to a few shows, and, and uh, they hung out together. I guess in New York or wherever they happened to be. In fact, one of the one of the biggest regrets I have was uh, I forget where we were, and Ornette came to the gig and. After the gig, we were bullshit, and Ornette said, "Hey, he told me he really liked my playing, which was, <laughs> I mean, when I was coming up, listening and reading Downbeat magazine, listening to, uh, uh, you know, Jazz Messengers and 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 Dave Brubeck, and, I, and then hearing Ornette and for him to say that to me was very flattering. And he said, he I was have going to tell to you though, uh, because this is such a weird coincidence between us being percussionists." The one project I did for Ornette, I played timpani. Oh, really? Was that New York? Yeah. And uh, it was in 2000. And he was putting together the Harmelodic Chamber Players. 
Okay. To play his piece, La Statue, for uh, tribute to the Statue of Liberty from the French. And and uh, and we played it in the Battery Park in view of the statue, and then we recorded it at his studio. But there was a, me and a bass player, and I had four temps, and I actually tried to be like the second bass player. And wow. again, this is really funny because it's like you, you look at the two guitar thing and then percussion takes over one of the guitar parts and this was like i know ornette's like two bass players he's got that guy playing upright but he doesn't have a second bass player i'm playing timpani i have four timpani i'm starting you know i'm doing the math and then and you'll love this because he comes over to me in the first day of rehearsal and the timpani part has been on my stand and i'm looking at it because i'm i'm first time i'm seeing it and it's dun dun da dun 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 dun. I'm like, there's no fucking way. There's no fucking way. I'm like, I'm I'm smart enough to know Ornette's music. Five minutes later, he sees me looking at the part. He comes over to me. He stands next to the stand, and he points to the part and says, "I don't want you to play any of this." I want, you, I want you to do your own thing. Yeah, I said, I can. Okay, Arnett, I can do that. He's like, yeah, just, you know, just play what you think, you know, what you think is right. And I'd worked with Cecil Taylor before. So like, I knew that these guys would either trust you or know, or that's just the way it works. It's super democratic. I love it. But that was the case with all those guys. Was it, was it free form or was it rhythmic? I played I played both, but I didn't play the part. Right. I just had to, you know, we all had to do an unaccompanied solo and we all had to do it was like a chamber ensemble. So, you know, small strings, a few winds, oh, okay, bass, and then the, the loose solo off on trumpet. So that was great. Um wow. and and Gary Giddens was producing it, and it was really interesting because. It was like his other chamber music, except now I couldn't play drum set, which I ideally wish I could have played with him. But no, I had the, to play timpani. And so as a result, I tried to play polyphonically and even with my fingers and 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 different ways of, of getting attacks to try to fit in with, with the texture of the uh, upright bass. And I was always fascinated by these guys using two bass players. Frank yeah. did it one time, you know. Cecil did it. Alan Silver, Henry Grimes. You know, there are a lot of a lot of that was like thing. Like, why two bass players? What do you do when you have two bass players? Just like when, what do you do when you have two guitar players? What do you do when you have two drummers? You better figure it out. Did you know uh, Buell Nightingale? Pardon. Did you know Buell Neidlinger, the bass player? Yes, sir, I did. Losing Pep. There you go. Yeah, Buell is an interesting figure. Yeah. And, and uh, for many reasons, and just, just as a through line of bass players that are virtuoso bass players. And, you know, like Ornette loved, loved Scott LaFaro and, and, uh, Bill Evans loves Scott LaFaro, and, and they, they became this new breed of bass player. 
after Charlie Hayden, a lot of these polyphonic bass players. Well, he, uh, I know you interviewed uh, Jean-Luc Ponty. Yes. One of your early ones. And uh, he, when he and Frank did uh, King Kong, with Jean uh, for some reason he had me play drums on it, not vibes. And it was the vibes I played on the road, but he hired uh, Gene Estes to play the vibe part. But Buell Nylinger was on the, on the session. And uh, I'm looking around, I'm thinking, man, these guys, the guys that he had playing were just all, all stars. I mean, it was just unbelievable. You know, yeah. him and Buell, and I forget to. Anyway, I had a, two or three guys who were big, big names, and it was a great. And I never really knew Buell that well, but that was the only time we ever played together. <laughs> well, did you know this LA based or maybe San Diego based player, um, Bert Turetsky? Mm. Do you remember him in the classical world? No, I don't. Okay. So he was he was another one of these, you know, uh, flagship uh, admiral bass players uh, who just played the instrument, the entire instrument, and knew every harmonic on the instrument, and yeah. brought the bass to this new level. So that it was, particularly when I had my band with Mark Dresser, it was possible to write for the bass and actually cover harmonic material rather wow. than just bass role. You now guys could play double, triple stops, etc. Uh, you, you had mentioned Bill Evans. Who who was that guy that the great bass player that played with him? Then he died in an auto accident. Charles Vero. Charles Vero. Okay. Charles yeah, Vero. He, yeah, he was he was something else. Well, and David Eisenson too was another classically trained bass player. I mean, there's 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 a through line with that, where it kind of you people say bands live and die on the drummer i get that but I, I think a lot of bands live and die on the bass player it's the, the combination yeah. the, the, the combination the of course is is important i think they have to really get along because if they don't because that's the whole that's the whole band is the feel of it i mean in most music not all music but i when i was in la i never knew any of the classical guys i knew the studio guys just rock guys well they were studio guys too but yeah. but yeah but I didn't do soundtracks. It may surprise you to realize or to hear me say that of all the different kinds of music I played, I enjoyed symphonic playing more than anything else. Is that right? Yeah. That's yeah, fascinating. I, I, but I but at the time I wanted to get out of it because of what I said before, they weren't doing anything new. But I but I enjoyed the physicality of it. I enjoyed the performance of it and enjoyed playing all the different instruments. Did you and, play uh, timpani on Beethoven Seventh? Oh sure, yeah. But I played uh, I played timpani two uh, two years with the Dayton Philharmonic, and then I was a I was a timpanist with the uh, Manhattan School of Music Orchestra, which was a good orchestra. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, I've heard I've heard that orchestra play Verez, and I've heard that orchestra play Kenton. I mean that I I used to go to Manhattan School concerts all the time and Juilliard concerts all the time and I I poached players from all those groups to do my stuff. When and, I went there, they were still over on the east side. Yeah. Before they took over the Juilliard building. Right. It's not not even there anymore. But the Paul Price uh, was the you know I got to play in his percussion ensemble and. Uh, Did you play ionization? 
Yeah. Uh, did we do? A, I don't know if we did ionization or not. I don't remember what we did. But he was always looking at me because I'd pull out these all these different kind of mallets that I, from Fred Hinger, you know, as a touch tone. And anyway, so they're always curious about that. And, and then we, uh, we went down to, I think it, one of the uh, uh, network orchestras had a, they, they had an open session every Saturday and you could get on there. And if you were an advanced music student, you could go out and sit in with them. And I remember sitting in with them on, on timpani and all these other guys that were, that were Goodman students, you know, they're looking at what's that shit? He's, you know, I had all these weird looking the mallets and the, the style of playing was so much different. But I, I don't think timpani was my favorite, but I did enjoy it. But I, I enjoyed it a lot, but I just enjoyed the whole percussion thing, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an incredible universe. Yeah. I do a lot of solo percussion music percussion ensemble percussion features it's it's really um it's kind of been in static in in some ways but now things are opening up in so many ways largely due oh, to I, I can't believe how, how how developed and how splashed open the percussion is today it, yeah. it's it's like a hundred times more than what was going on when I was playing I mean it just I mean everything from the drum corps to I mean, everything. You know, it, it just drum circle. Everybody has ten marimbas and five. You know, yeah, it's all over the place. It's it's really come into its own. You know, percussion. Yeah, so I had my a lot of work for percussion. My marimba quartet was premiered at Cal Arts. Oh really? You know, and it's a it's a tough piece. But the level is high for this kind of thing. Oh and, yeah. You know that's kind of kind of one thing I hinted at in our email was the special skill set that each of you brought to those playing situations, to those challenges. And Bill, I'm curious if there was anything in particular that you remember about bizarre fingerings, or did you guys have to fuck with tunings, or what was it like in, in the in the most extreme beef art moments? Do you recall? Yeah, I, like I said earlier, when Don found the black keys and we were playing in E flat, yeah, and I'm I'm the only guitar player, so I wanted some low sound. You know, usually I would not even play my low two strings to get out of the way of a bass player, but that group didn't work that way. You could have a traffic jam in the low frequency. Okay, so I'm tuned to E flat, so I did that. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of times where I just would find ways to do things. I don't know that I tapped. I think I did tap, which is normal technique, you know, now. Uh, but I think I'd have to play something to tap it, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but not much in tunings, you know, really not, you know, other than this, the obvious blues oriented stuff that's in open tunings and it's so obvious. But no, it wasn't that. It was just barring in weird places. You yeah. Know? You know, my hands couldn't do that now, but you know, just weird places to be barring two strings. Well, you have are, big hands. I don't you, really. They're just skinny. <laughs> okay, so did, did, did that play into this? Uh, no, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, when you're looking at these parts, and especially when John would hand me these things, and I'd, you know, I, I was, I would use like notes on a thing or some type of graphic because I was a terrible reader, but just so I could remember, because I'm just learning this part. You can't remember that shit. So I'd make those things and then try to play it and go, I can't do that. 
what notes, you know, and I worked that out with John, you know, or later just, I just, I'm not playing that note. I can't do it. But I tried to always tried to do as much of what was originally given to me. And so, yeah, there was times it was weird, like playing like this to get bar three strings here and, and get that length, you know. I should have gotten little clamps and things, you know what I mean? Temporary capos that would just grab the guitar in different places and prepared guitar. I should have done that. Prepared guitar, Bill. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This, I even have it. When you stick this sucker in the strings, it's this yeah, is a yeah, piece yeah. street cleaner, right? The street cleaners, they have this wire thing. I, I go pick them up because you put them in the strings at different places and you get an African thumb pick sound and shit like that out of it. It's really cool. All about prepared percussion, prepared piano. Love it. That's so cool. Yeah, I certainly love the prepared piano. You know, Cage premiered. Uh, the tutor? When I was working with him. He, he premiered his, uh, I forget the name of the piece, prepared piano. And a local uh, local pianist at the, at the conservatory there, she played it. And it was really beautiful, you know. It is, and I heard past <laughs> summer played outdoors, and you just there's something really beautiful about it. I dem I actually demoed touching the strings in in one of my recording classes recently. They didn't know you could do that, you know. So it's it's really amazing what. In fact, uh, Andy Partridge of XTC asked me to ask Bill. What did you play on the opening track of Bozo uh, when you played solo? Was that a harmonizer? Got a buzz on, yeah. Um, distortion, harmonizer, yeah. Distortion, harmonizer. Distortion and a harmonizer, yeah. I can't, it's a long time ago, you know. But he loves that track and he wanted to know how, how the hell you got it. was it. a harmonizer. I think, I think I saw your interview with him that, yeah, I, I can't remember what interval I had had the harmonizer set to, honestly. <laughs> you know, a long time ago, 20 years. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it was a seventh. But anyway, it was, um, yeah, it was just heavy distortion, you know. Yeah, it was, I was great. Just try, I was just trying to do my cheapo fake weird bebop, but not bebop. <laughs> <laughs> right. Mechanical, sort of like a mechanical monster trying to be bebop right i got a buzz on is kind of obviously cyborg back then i had a buzz on you know <laughs> cyborg bop yeah yeah wow you talk, about some of the, you talk about some of the complicated and complex uh fingerings and uh, intervals and chords and so on the guitar i was always knocked out about the, the bass parts some of the oh god and, and with finger picks and uh, and because it is you know Mark really really must have worked hard to be able to learn to play like that. I, I remember we <laughs> Bill might remember this when we I think the first tour we did or one of the first tours we did we opened in New York at a jazz club called Unganos. And I do uh, remember? So after, do you remember that? Oh God, yeah. <laughs> so we we went down there in the afternoon to do a sound check. And at one point, Mark was testing his speaker or something, or other, and he started just playing some of those complicated bass parts. And I look up and there, and, and Mingus came to listen, and Ferris Saunders and all these. So here's Mingus standing there 
in front of the stage looking up at Mark, and Mark is just ripping through this stuff that nobody would ever be able to figure out how to do that stuff. And Megan just looked at him and just shaking his head. You could see, you could see him saying, I don't know what that white boy's doing. So I'm, glad you mentioned that, Bill, before you before go, you go. jump in. I'm so glad you mentioned that because if you're paying attention to Beefheart music, you gotta notice the bass parts. They're yeah. insane. Yeah. Sorry, Bill. Go ahead. No, no, exactly. They are insane. I do remember that gig because that's the gig that my guitars were stolen by the cab driver right. at oh, uh, we were going to Ornette Coleman's loft to pick up Don to go to the gig. And the cab, because Langdon Winter was with me, he was a writer for Rolling Stone. He couldn't stay in. I said, just wait here, I'll get Don. He was right behind me wanting to meet Ornette Coleman. The cab drives off with our gear. So I'm borrowing a guitar to play in front of Pharaoh Sanders Joe Henderson, Charles Mingus, scared to death because I know who these guys are. But anyway, I get to the gig, sort of. And then after the gig, I'll never forget it because Mingus was still just staring at the stage. He wouldn't look at me. He wouldn't fucking look at me. And his wife, I think she was blonde woman. Susan. Was, yeah, okay. And so, she, and I said, Mr., you know, little kid goes up, Mr. Mingus, what'd you think? Gee whiz, you know. I said, what'd you think? He wouldn't even look at me. And then she looked around his belly because he was a big dude, right? She went, he really liked it. And then she got back in line again. That was my conversation with Charles Mingus. <laughs> you made Mingus speechless. <laughs> I don't know. Or he didn't want to talk to some weirdo. I don't know. But he was just standing there staring forward. He wouldn't look at me. No, I think he had to hear it. I found out a lot more about Mingus's Avon side. He, mm -hmm. got, he got it all. Yeah. You know, a lot of those guys that were super, super smart and were coming into a third stream area were really, really well versed in classical and jazz and mm -hmm. and out shit. They knew everything. Even Jocko, he knew everything. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, you look at those guys that are known for their thing or whatever. Zawinul. Zawinul had atonal and microtonal orchestral music that we'll probably never hear. Right. You know, um, or and or like people will never hear my chamber music, but hopefully someday they'll hear some of it. I, I need to do a chamber music recording, but yeah, it's 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 really true that you guys were there witnessing this collision of all these worlds, and I was always fascinated by Don's so-called horn playing. But, uh, you know, knew that he was connecting to Pharaoh, knew that he was connecting to Dolphy, knew that he was connecting to Ornette, and dug that shit. Yeah. I thought, he, I thought he did a really good job of not knowing what he's doing and making the thing sound good. You know? He really did, because he could push air. Yeah, he, he could push air. lung capacity. Yeah, he could push air. And he had, he had a great artistic sensibility. So once it's yeah. in that level, you know, and he could just not have to know notes, but he could use sounds. And when he found one, he would get creative with it, you know. And do Very... you have a connection between that and Ornette playing violin backwards and upside down? <laughs> yeah. They want they want the non, you know, they want yeah. this primitive, this yeah. pre-conventional. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's a while, and, and I and then I was kind of appreciated. I mean, I would have loved to have heard other soloists as well, but the idea of the blowing over the top of a totally worked out quartet mm -hmm. 
thing underneath that you guys used to do and just marvel at like, yeah, that's kind of cool. Like you could listen to this one thing or you could listen to this thing with it, which totally obliterates the other thing in one one way. So it's mm -hmm. highly conceptual, but at the same time, you kind of like, I want to hear certain pieces without the horns and the horns weren't worked out. I feel I'm, so I'm conflicted. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I get it. Because clearly hair pie, I mean, that's some, that's some really worked out shit. Did you play marimba on, on hair pie art? Be honest, I don't remember. Yeah, I, I remember no, that. Hair, no, hair pie is trap mess. So but I mean, did you yeah, ever? But we played, but we played a lot of trap mess stuff. Yeah, I don't. Re yeah, later. What was I, what was concluded that you can recall? Concluded. What was included from Trout Mask that might you might remember? We that we played out. Played live. Played later. Yeah. I think I think it was my Human Gets Me Blues was what more one that we played. Um, John we French played Steel Softly. We Steel played, Softly. Uh, yeah. Veterans Day Poppy. There were there were six or eight um, we played. Routinely. He remembers. That's fascinating. Yeah. You know, like, what did he really believe in still from from that period? You know, what's kept and what's what's eschewed. But um, it is interesting. Like, uh, so was well ever performed during that time or any of the solo vocal jaunts? Not that I know of. He would have had to remember his lyrics. So, no. Did he always play with cue cards? Or, or didn't or or didn't no he had this stuff here you know but he got better at it I guess but we were doing simpler music when we were doing trout mask and stuff like that that's why we didn't do it because he did he, I don't think maybe that's why we didn't tour is because he there's no way you know that he was going to be able to remember that and read the, those lyrics at that at that tempo and stuff no and was he I into wondered about, I often wondered about that myself <laughs> because some of that stuff is not easy to remember. No, uh, you know, so I, I, I mean, I can never really hear what he was singing anyway. <laughs> so I often, often wondered about that. And do you guys know his later stuff at all? The last two records, Dock at the Radar Station, or uh, Ice Cream for Crow. Those are the two that are mentioned, but I had had enough. <laughs> well, I was, I was on Shiny Beast, and you're on Shiny Beast on yeah, Marimba. On Marimba and. Uh, I may have played some miscellaneous percussion, but mostly marimba. What was that experience like? It was uh, it was a lot of fun because I had no responsibility. All I had to do was come in and play the part and and Who's part around, and I wasn't I wasn't uh, burdened with being in the band. How do you get a part? What's your part? Got... I'm sorry. What is your part? What do you get as a part for for a beef art session at that point in time? Well, at the time, I got scale. See, what, what no, they no, didn't I guess, realize. What, no, I mean, was there a written part? Oh, yeah, yeah. By whom? What I did was very simple. I'm just I, wondering. I, you know, I don't it? remember. It was more, a lot of it was more harmony. Like on uh, Candle Mambo, uh, it was very simple, just two or three chords. Did you play on Love Lies? Maybe. Uh, Maybe so, yeah. I have to say. Pretty great later period, Don. Love Lies is killer. Yeah. 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 He, what about, well, they, when I see mommy, I feel like a mummy. Yeah, that was kind of nice. 
I don't think I had anything to do with that one. <laughs> I heard them play that at, uh, I think it was at the Roxy or the, um, when I came back. There's some moments, man. Yeah. You know, I, and I love that he just sort of goes out in, in his most out fashion, you know, like making love to a vampire with a monkey on my knee, you know, and like he's just going stride right to the end. <laughs> <laughs> ghosts and brick bats and and curtains blowing and and freaking out and just his visual language unbelievable yeah, I've, I've i've known a lot of hip guys in my life but there was nobody that i could ever spew out that stuff over and over and on and on and on it's remarkable stop pictures yeah. and colors and hips hip phrases and and double entendres and you know. and circles don't fly they float you know yeah. it's just like <laughs> just these the things that are just are ultimately quotable sue egypt or or you know uh that's raspberries like what the fuck is going on here <laughs> and can anybody make sense of it i mean pachuco cadaver you know, I just frequently like I have to take breaks from this stuff, guys, by the way. But it's like when I come back to it, it's still there's still something there for me. And I guess that's that's a compliment. Really. Well, it's totally unique. And, uh, you know, you, you never there's hear always something there. Yeah. And going back to decals, it really is. It's a special it's a special brand of rock music. <laughs> it just it really is. And and that whole that whole really meaty part of that curve, I think, deserves. And this is what uh, it's coming on fifty years now. Over yeah, that over was, fifty years. Yeah, seventy one was seventy one. Yeah, so fifty fifty years has passed, and we're looking at this stuff, and I say that that's that's pretty damn good. I I wish that we could get a remaster on it. Definitely. Do you know anything about the existence of the masters? Uh, no, John French would, um, because he's been trying to get, uh, he's in contact with Ahmet Zappa, who owns all that stuff. And um, might be universal now. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure. I know they weren't lost in the fire. I know that much. But um, he wants to, he's doing a, a remix of Trout Mask. That's what he wants to do. And again, this project that we're working on, the four of us with moderators. Is who, who, who's working on it, Bill? Tell us about it. Um, well, I could just, maybe I can pull up. A, you can't hear the audio, but I could show you a little video clip here. Maybe. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So so what we did is, and that's Billy Bob Thornton. Um, All right. And so we did the four of us because Jeff was left the band in a very awful way. And right. uh so I, what, that was that story I was talking about, Mark, and how to create money. So then I started thinking of documenting um, the Trout Mask album. Oh, so we did. Bill. So we did. So we did four moderators: Billy Bob, um, uh, Steve Froy, who runs the Beefheart site, Samuel Andreev, you know, yep. and um, <laughs> Matt Groening, the Simpsons guy. And you and, didn't call me. Huh? And you didn't call me. I didn't get to make the choices, Greg. <laughs> <laughs>
that we went with those four guys. I mentioned uh, you, of course, but but were you happy with it? I don't know what it is yet. We're uh, we're just working on put it together. Okay. Okay. Art, do you see this? Yeah. This is you know the, the culprits here, and that's Billy Bob Thornton, who Art also knows. Anyway, it's just documenting us talking and having these moderators ask questions, much like this, that we'll have to really cut down to just speak to the the things that we've been talking about but through their eyes, right? And I just thought documenting it before the one of the four of us was gone. Well, I'd, I, I've, I've had my John French experience, but I'd really love to talk to, uh, to Rocket Morton. Well, I'll see what I can do. I'll be talking to him in a week or so. Yeah. Well, Art's smiling over there. <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be uh that's gonna be a difficult project for you <laughs> i mean this if i'm gonna say it in any episode i'll say it in this one uh john french called me to play drums on the 50th anniversary of trout mask and it didn't happen due to covid i guess and also due to other issues but uh, that was quite an honor for me because, you know, I, I, I work with Gary Lucas. I work with Zoot. And music has always meant a lot to me. I think it's influenced my piano trio music. It, I have a piece for piano trio called Hysteresis, which is dedicated to Don. You know, I have a piece called Immediately Peeled for, um, for Marimba Solo. You know, so Don's, Don's language and his, his, uh, his kind of, world has really influenced my concept of post i don't know if it's a post it in some ways it's the earliest punk shit you know what i mean like so i don't know what it is right it's like this super sophisticated thing but it's a super punk shit am i crazy no i agree it's super punk it's yeah. like the biggest fuck you in music besides 444 <laughs> whatever the cage piece is like you know i i, I just um i just think it's that monumental i'm sure you've all your moderators have said this to you but like i worked with cage for one day and i got a sense of what he was and what he wasn't and that's kind of what we're talking about right mm -hmm. It's like, you know what, God, these are God, these are human beings. They're fucking brilliant. But what they are and what they aren't becomes very apparent to you in many painful and, you know, really meaningful ways. And, and that cage music and that cage opening up, I think was influential for a lot of the California guys and beyond. I mean, Cage penetrated into Europe with a lot of that conceptual shit. And then you had Stockhausen. So, you know, it's 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 a it's one thing for me. It's one music for me, especially when we think about how huge Stockhausen was for every fucking person on this program. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Down the eight to everyone in my almost every one of my episodes, somebody brings up Stockhausen. It's like miles, you can't get around it. And Stockhausen was, was just performed at my my college uh, here, the University of New Jersey. And 
it, it was massive. So it's like the really the smartest guys to have been in their presence to be around when they're around. I thought I don't think we can we can discount that and and you guys uh I really appreciate you sharing all this with me because it's a little geeky but it's uh <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And uh I mean I, I feel like we could go on forever and I and I know you guys have to probably get to dinner now or lunch whatever but um you know thank you so much. Well, it was a lot of fun. I uh, you have a heck of a, a trove of interviews. I, I, I'm going to have to pour pour through some of them. You know? Worth the journey. Worth the journey, man. There's some yeah. Some I people like, I'm uh, not familiar with, but man, Hal Galper. You know, I mean, you got players that I got their books here, and I'm going, man, this is a great book. And then you're interviewing them, right? So yeah. No, I have Sam, where... Sam Andrea is a, is is a friend of mine, which which you know, and and uh, he's very articulate, a very bright guy, very articulate. Well, we try to be very clear about this. Yeah, I think that's the 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 new approach, really, for me is uh, let's have a clarity about what this is, isn't, and how it's done. What can we get out of it? You know, I teach a, a songwriting class where we just do Don's lyrics. I don't give a shit if they can't hear the music well. They can't deal with it. It's like, listen to this set of words. Mm -hmm. Listen to Ken Nordine. <laughs> Word jazz. Word jazz, yeah. Word jazz. Don't you think that Don's a beatnik? Definitely. Definitely. Totally beat. Beat damage, right? What? Total beat damage till the end. Yeah. That's his world. It was. It's great, though. The language yeah. thing, I mean, think about it. Those, those, those cafes with people reciting poetry and, and language is exploding. And he's there with Ginsburg. He's there with those guys. Mm -hmm. He's so much. He never would have. He never would have had those relationships. Clearly. But Cecil didn't really either. Yeah. You know, they just... But I mean, as far as the beatnik scene, I, I knew some of those guys. Well, not some of those guys. I knew Ginsburg. Yeah. And, and Dom was not in touch with them? No. No, I think he would have... He would have put the whammy on all of them. <laughs> I think they... I don't know. I didn't. I, I'd like to have known Burroughs, and but uh, Ornette was yeah, friends I, with Burroughs. What's that? Ornette was friends with Burroughs. I'm not surprised. Yeah. I didn't care much for you know Ginsburg, and but uh, I, I I'd like to have known some of them. They were just a little bit before my time, a few years. Mr. Cage used to show up at concerts in the '80s and just sit in the audience. Who did? Mr. Cage. He was really, he was around. He, you could talk to John Cage and, you know, on the street. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, he was cool. Max. I had a lot of fun with him. Uh, you know, I was, I was working with him for about six months and we did a lot of concerts. And we did a lot of uh, unusual shows and, uh, and I, I got a, uh, 
my overriding memory of him was that he was really kind of an imp. He had a great sense of humor, and uh, I mean, he was serious about what he did, but he 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 also could take it or leave it. It was it was it was an interesting. Well, being basically a Buddhist, he um, you know he kind of took it as it came. <laughs> but uh, I remember he did a. a he did a lecture. He had a lecture in front of the, uh, the psychology community, psychology psychiatrist community in Cincinnati, at one of the big hospitals. And there were like thirty or forty psychologists, psychiatrists there, and he was why they chose him for a lecture. I'll never know. But uh, Morton Feldman had just blown into town, and for some reason they invited me to go along with him, and I just I thought that was great. So did you went, play Feldman? What's that? Had you played Feldman? No, I haven't. No, I haven't. I'd like I'd like to, but it was uh, I wasn't even aware of his stuff until much later. I would have had I known about it. It's cool stuff. But at any rate, uh, yeah, like King of Prussia and all that. It, it, I guess some of those. But at any rate, uh, so we gave the lecture, and uh, they, they they the guys kept trying to uh, tack Cage down, which is not possible to do. And uh, so, anyway, it was it was a lot of fun, and, and I think Cage really impressed everybody. So, but when we left, we walked out of the building. I remember uh, Feldman turned to John. And he said, "You know," he said, "He says, you know, Johnny." He says, "They just don't understand the artist." <laughs> and I thought, "Well, that's there you go. They don't because it's, you're trying to you're trying to take a scientific endeavor." And superimpose it on top of an, of an artistic endeavor. It doesn't work. And mysticism. Mysticism. Any and more than business doesn't work with the arts. Aleatoric. Yeah. And then, you know, just the most extreme stuff. But it's just so high-minded. I, I, I just, you know, I, I really believe that. And, and, you know, that's where I want to exist. It's a tricky area. I mean, you have... <laughs> You have to have a pretty good grip on yourself, I think. To or you could with. you could really lose yourself, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of sham and bullshit too. So you have to, you know. I mean, I mean, if you can, if you can draw a black line across a canvas, and everybody, somebody wants to pay a million dollars for that, you know, there's you got to figure that there's maybe some sham can can get <laughs> crept in some of the stuff. <laughs> and, I like the guys that have done the done it done the uh, classical way first, and then they went out. <laughs> Can I tell you, I saw Don's paintings in person. I I, I hope you have, but I just wanted to mention to the audience when I saw them in person, they're three dimensional. Yeah. I really did not realize this. The layers of paint and the manipulation by finger or whatever the fuck he's doing of the texture of the drying paint or whatever he's using, whatever medium is using, it really comes at you. And so I don't know if you can get to see them, obviously see the pictures, go on YouTube, but really those things are, are pretty impressive. I have to say the amount of surface detail. Yeah, I've, I've seen it where well, I've seen a lot of stuff and uh... I'd say he's as good as anybody else painting in the abstract world, you know. 
Um, some of them are scary. Yeah. I'm sorry. You know, some of the creatures that he painted. Some of those creatures are scary to me. Yeah. I have a piece called Candle Powered Rodeo Ghosts. That's that's one of his. I'm like, yeah. Candle powered rodeo ghosts. He could turn a phrase. <laughs> he could turn a phrase. You've had it. You've yeah, had I, it. I, oh, mean, I know. Uh, okay, okay, guys. Thank you. Thank so you. Yeah, and I'll be looking for you online. I want to hear some of your stuff. I'd be happy to to continue sharing stuff with you and it's my pleasure to meet you art trip and bill hargler road you are the man as always you're the source hey, bro. <laughs> it's good seeing you again brother bill yeah we'll keep in touch now we will okay take care of yourself art all Guys, right hang in there thank okay. you so much all the best oh. happy holidays everybody this has been the podcast with greg bendy and my guests have been Art Trip and Bill Harker wrote Zuhorn Rollo talking about only the coolest shit. <laughs> Somebody asked me when this will be put up. Very soon. Okay. Yes, this is a great one. It may have okay. been one of the longer ones. I've been trying to keep them shorter. It's not working out. You have interesting <laughs> people talking about the coolest stuff and that I try to keep try to keep a handle on that we're talking about the coolest stuff thank you guys you guys are the best okay take care everybody hit us on patreon like and subscribe we'll see you next time bye bye guys